Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 34, The Brunswick Manifesto. In the last episode, we witnessed Paris lurch dramatically closer towards insurrection. The insubordinate federes settled in the capital. The radical sections established a de facto government in the town hall. Leading revolutionaries renounced the Constitution of 1791 and embraced cries for a second revolution. In this episode, we'll continue to follow the key events in Paris, focusing on three developments in particular. Firstly, the arrival of more federes. Secondly, the coordinated action of the Parisian sections as they collectively embrace the idea of dethronement. And finally, the declaration of the infamous Brunswick Manifesto, a document that is not only controversial for its substance, but one that is absolutely shrouded in grey history. Having covered all of these important developments, we'll then step back and examine the position of the leading factions and revolutionaries on the eve of the fall of the monarchy. While the position of some protagonists may be predictable. The lack of involvement of some revolutionaries and the outright opposition of others might very well surprise you. In fact, we'll be witnessing a dramatic shift within one of the key revolutionary factions. So that's the very ambitious agenda for this episode. And that's the reason why this episode is the longest episode to date. So much for my efforts to slim these down a little. Next episode will be the fall of the monarchy, so we have a lot to get through today. Now, before we get into it, we have a few things to discuss. Firstly, a reminder that accompanying the next episode, I would like to release a question and answers episode answering all your questions about events, people, debates, up until and including the fall of the monarchy. Thank you to everyone who has sent in questions, but we all know that you can never have too many questions on the French Revolution. Some of the questions I've received so far include what I think would have happened if Louis had successfully escaped France in mid-1791, and which singular event cost Louis the most in terms of his public popularity. So please, do send in all your questions. Now, to help get those creative juices flowing, I do have a thank you present for everyone who sends in a question. If you send in your question before mid-September, when you send it in, you can also tell me which of the three episode extras for this episode you would like to hear the most. There's three great episode extras for this episode, and if you send me in a question, I'll send you a restricted access link to whichever episode extra you nominate. So, don't wait, send in your questions, you can send them in on Facebook, on Instagram, on greyhistory.com, or just open up your podcast app, scroll down to the show notes for this episode, 
and click the Contact Me link. Remember, when you send in your question, also tell me which of the episode extras you'd like to indulge in. And please send in those questions before mid-September. Of course, Grey History is only possible with the support of those listeners who go above and beyond to help sponsor the podcast. And so, a huge thank you to all the Patreon supporters of the show. This includes the new Virtuous Citizens, Adam, Peter, Mark, Dirk, Nerida, Aaron, and Melly. Another huge thank you to the new True Revolutionaries, Roxandra and Michael. A shout out to William and Xavier, who increased their pledge. And a humongous thank you to Brian, who just went rogue and created his own super generous pledge. I really was speechless for a good day or two. A special call out to the magnificent champions of the people, Jeffrey, Cynthia, George and Erlang, for their ongoing support as well. Now, this month, the rewards and benefits have gone through a bit of an overhaul, along with the various tiers. Going forward, all Patreons will have access to all episode extras, all bonus episodes, all behind-the-scenes content, and an ad-free feed. All Patreons can also vote on the topics of future bonus episodes, as well as access a new detailed episode guide, which is live as of this episode. In that episode guide will be a range of additional facts, quotes, perspectives, and images to help unpack all the content of this episode. For this episode alone, there is roughly 30 minutes of bonus content in episode extras, which are essentially little mini-episodes exploring ideas or events relating to the contents of the main show. There's also already two full-length bonus episodes available exclusively to Patreon supporters, and the third one, on science during the revolutionary era, is currently in the works. So, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you'd like to support Grey History, you can help the show produce more regularly and more consistently while accessing all this bonus content for as little as $2 per new episode. That's roughly half a cup of coffee. Of course, if you stop listening to the show in the future, you can cancel your pledge at any time. But by becoming a Patreon supporter, it's essentially a way to make a small tip to the show every time a future episode comes out. Unfortunately, mainstream podcast apps aren't like Uber, where you can seamlessly tip your audio driver at the end of the show. And so I can't stress enough that this really is the best way to help me gain access to more research material, to produce more regularly, and to unpack more of history's ambiguities, nuances, and lessons. So, to gain access to more than 30 minutes of bonus content for this episode alone, as well as to gain access to all previous and future bonus content, please do support the show on Patreon. There are links in the show notes and on the website. And it will only take you two to three minutes to make a meaningful difference to one of your favourite independent history podcasts. Finally, a big thank you to everyone who has helped the show by sharing it on social media, telling friends and family, and leaving written reviews. I really appreciate you going out of your way to share the show to others who enjoy history that isn't oversimplified or superficial, and I'm really grateful your ongoing help. Anyway, 
that's enough from me. So let's get into the longest episode yet. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 34, The Brunswick Manifesto. On the 20th of June, 1792, a Parisian mob burst into the chambers of power. Energised by the nation's long list of troubles, the demonstrators came within inches of overthrowing the French monarchy. With the king literally cornered in his palace, and with the assembly occupied by disorderly protesters, the people of Paris could have commenced a second revolution, if through no other means than a sharp blade or a sudden gunshot. But the key word there was disorderly. When the demonstration of the 20th of June had been organised by the subordinate leaders of the city's radical clubs and sections, its goal was intimidation, not insurrection. The events of the 20th had come so close to toppling the Constitution of 1791, but that had been completely unintentional. Far from a planned uprising against the government. June 20 was nothing more than a planned demonstration against the government's policies. However, six weeks later, the intention of the city's radical agitators was completely different. By the end of July 1792, Paris was once again on the verge of insurrection. And this time, Revolution was the order of the day. Since the infamous demonstration of June 20, France had abruptly lurched closer to a second revolution. The nation had been mobilised in the face of foreign invasion. The country had been declared to be in danger. The Federés had established themselves in the capital against the wishes of the Assembly and the King, while the sections of Paris had formed a shadow municipal authority in the town hall itself. To top it all off, leading figures of the revolutionary left were now openly embracing calls for a second revolution, or at a minimum, denouncing the King of being crown deep in treasonous activities. The ringleaders of the June 20th demonstration may not have planned to topple the monarchy in June, but by August, those same figures had seen their coalition grow, and now they planned to do just that. The days of the French monarchy were fast approaching zero. It's here, in late July 1792, that we arrive at two quite important developments. Well, perhaps one quite important development, and one development that is either critically important or hardly worth talking about, it just depends who you ask. 
Let's start with the former. The first key development relates to our new friends, the Federes, because somehow they managed to cram more explosive materials into the already fully packed powder keg that was the city of Paris. On the 25th of July, around 300 Federes arrived from the northwestern port of Brest. These patriotic volunteers were joined by another 500 or so Federes from Marseille on the 30th of July. The arrival of these two groups is critical, as both groups were of radical disposition and very much intended to remedy the situation in the capital. How radical, I hear you ask? Well, historian Robert Johnson describes the Marseille Federes as being red-hot Republicans. Furthermore, Their own words left nothing to be discussed. In a petition to the Assembly, these newly arrived volunteers boldly proclaimed, The very name of Louis XVI now means treason to us. With a position like that, you can understand why the arrival of these new federes is pretty damn significant. The Central Committee of the Federes were already pledging to triumph or die against the enemy in the King's Council, and yet the Federes from Brest and Marseille make the original volunteers look borderline harmless. The arrival of these groups was so influential that insurrection almost erupted within hours of both groups arriving. Historian George Lefebvre credits the recently reinstalled Parisian mayor, Jerome Pétion, for averting insurrection on two separate occasions. So, the first major development at the end of July was not just the arrival of yet more Federé volunteers, but Federés who were the very definition of devout revolutionary zealots. These men had every intention of ending the treason of the crown. They had every intention of purging the kingdom of the king. However, while the presence of these new federes added momentum to a second revolution, it was the arrival of information which, debatably, provided the final impetus. The second key development that occurred in late July was the proclamation of an infamous document which history has come to call the Brunswick Manifesto. So, what the hell was the Brunswick Manifesto? Let's start with the first part, Brunswick. The Duke of Brunswick was a 56-year-old German prince. The Principality of Brunswick-Wolfenbüttel and the Duchy of Brunswick-Lüneburg were some of those smaller states that we've discussed in the Holy Roman Empire, and both states are now part of modern-day Germany. The Duke himself was quite an interesting figure. He was generally regarded at the time as being an enlightened despot, a man who ruled in a similar manner to the respected Frederick the Great. Historian John Dahlberg-Acton describes him as the most admired and popular prince of the time, and it should be noted that some revolutionaries even toyed with the relatively far-fetched idea 
of replacing Louis XVI with the Duke of Brunswick. However, what's important at this point in time was not the Duke's reputation as a benevolent or cultured ruler, but rather his reputation as a skilled military commander. Historian Alaire Belloc describes Brunswick as being regarded by his contemporaries as the best general in Europe. Indeed, the King of Prussia certainly thought so. Back in 1787, King Frederick William II had entrusted Brunswick with the command of the Prussian military when Brunswick was dispatched to crush Dutch revolutionaries. Now, finding himself at war with French revolutionaries, the Prussian king once again turned to the Duke and elevated him to the position of commander of the coalition forces. Thus, as the French prepared for invasion by both Prussian and Austrian armies, it was widely regarded that the man leading those troops was a master of military affairs. Preparing for the upcoming invasion, in late July, the Duke of Brunswick released his now infamous manifesto. The document outlined the objectives of the coalition forces, as well as the rules of engagement in which the coalition troops would wage war against France. The first part of the document was largely unsurprising. After denouncing the revolutionaries as illegitimate usurpers and dangerous warmongers, Brunswick declared that the Allied sovereigns intended to put an end to the anarchy which consumed the French kingdom. Specifically, the coalition intended to restore the king the security and liberty he was deprived of, to reinstall Louis as the nation's sole and legitimate ruler. While not particularly good news for the French revolutionaries, this proclamation was hardly surprising. What was surprising, however, was what came next. The Duke's manifesto outlined a series of provocative demands and principles. Most importantly, Brunswick demanded that Paris restore the king to full liberty and render him due respect. The Duke warned that if harm was to come to the king, the punishment inflicted on Paris would be biblical. In fact, he warned of an exemplary and ever-memorable vengeance. Here's a snippet of the declaration. If the palace of the Tuileries is entered by force or attacked, if the least violence be offered to their majesties, and if their safety and liberty are not immediately assured, we will inflict an ever-memorable vengeance by delivering over the city of Paris to military execution and complete destruction, and the rebels guilty of the said outrages to the punishment that they merit. An ever-memorable vengeance. Military execution. Complete destruction. That is what awaited the people of France if they even thought of touching a single hair of the King of France. Which, I must admit, 
does kind of remind me of Liam Neeson's character, Brian Mills, in the action movie Taken. I mean, fair warning, I'm, I'm going to digress here. But you can kind of take Liam Neeson's words and put them into the mouth of the Duke of Brunswick, and you pretty much get the Brunswick Manifesto. Let me see if I can get the lines right here. I have a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for revolutionaries like you. If you let my Louis go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Mike. Terrible reenactment aside, if you haven't seen the movie, that will make absolutely no sense. But if you have seen the movie Taken, I think you'll agree that the Duke of Brunswick was more or less the original Brian Mills. Anyway, I have well and truly digressed as per usual. Having warned of a vengeance that would never be forgotten, Brunswick also announced a series of measures which further emphasised the coming bloodshed. It was declared that the inhabitants of towns who dared to oppose coalition forces would instantly be punished as rebels with the full rigour of war. Not only would they be put to the sword, but their houses would be demolished or burned. Furthermore, any National Guardsman unlucky enough to be captured would be treated as an irregular and instantaneously shot. No mercy would be granted. No pardons would be issued. All who endangered the king or resisted his Germanic liberators would be wiped from the face of the earth. So, as you can imagine, When the Brunswick Manifesto became known in Paris a few days later, this slightly inflammatory document had a bit of an impact. However, the impact of the Brunswick Manifesto is a matter of grey history. On one side of the historical debate are a group of historians who believe that the impact of the manifesto was significant. Scholars in this camp often characterised the document's publication as a critical development in the fall of the monarchy, and for a variety of reasons. Now, there is no shortage of historians who hold this view, so here is just a taste of some of the opinions out there. Historian Charles Mallet states that the declaration caused the wildest indignation. Historian Adolf Thiers the future French Prime Minister and President in the 19th century, claims that the manifesto created an extraordinary effect, which energised the nation's eagerness to fight back against this terrible enemy. Building on this idea, other historians proclaim that the document radicalised the radicals, and therefore directly triggered the fall of the monarchy. Historian Simon Sharma, for example, states that it created a kill-or-be-killed mentality, particularly for the revolutionaries in Paris, and thus spurred the revolutionaries into dramatic acts. 
While these historians differ in their emphasis as to how the manifesto expedited the fall of the monarchy, all of these scholars emphasise the manifesto's importance. To them, this document energised the national psyche, created a popular outcry, and focused the minds of the Parisian revolutionaries on the dramatic actions required to save the revolution. Collectively, these views are summarised neatly by historian Francois Mignet, who records his version of the document's impact. Mignet very much subscribes to the idea that the declaration created a near universal outcry of patriotic anger and rage. This fiery and impolitic manifesto, which disguised neither the designs of the emigrants nor those of Europe, which treated a great nation with a truly extraordinary tone of command and contempt, which openly announced to it all the miseries of an invasion, and moreover, vengeance and despotism, excited a national insurrection. It, more than anything else, hastened the fall of the throne and prevented the success of the coalition. There was but one wish, one cry of resistance, from one end of France to the other, and whoever not joined in it, would have been looked on as guilty of impiety towards his country and the sacred cause of its independence. So, one camp of historians portray the Brunswick Manifesto's impact as significant. So significant that in order to discuss the fall of the monarchy, one has to discuss the Brunswick Manifesto, which seemingly triggered it. However, other historians question this popular narrative, which has long surrounded the controversial document. The 19th century historian Hippolyte Taine was one of the first to challenge the true importance of the manifesto. Relying heavily on primary sources, Taine concluded that the manifesto spurred no notable public response. Neither Hebert nor Robespierre wrote about it in their publications, and the conservative journalist Malay Dupont noted privately, The threats which it contains do not disturb the progress of intrigues of constitutional or Jacobinical proceedings. Dupin, who had played a role in the document's creation, had every reason to overstate its importance and its impact. And yet, he was hardly positive about its influence. Instead, the journalist noted that the manifesto produces no sensation whatsoever. People laugh at it. Only the newspapers and their readers are familiar with it. The mass know nothing about it. Nobody fears the coalition nor foreign troops. Dupin may have been exaggerating when he stated nobody feared the coalition nor foreign troops. 
but he certainly was accurate to say that people laughed at the manifesto. Broadsheets tried to make fun of the declaration, depicting the document to be nothing better than toilet paper. Elsewhere, copies were burnt in ceremonial bonfires of patriotic defiance. For a document claimed by some historians to be critical to triggering the fall of the monarchy, there is evidence, such as Dupin's remarks, that brings this into question. Historian Elizabeth Cross, who has written extensively on the manifesto, certainly doubts the claims which emphasise the document's importance and summarises the perspectives of those who share her view. Yet there is ample reason to be sceptical about the manifesto's importance in these radicalisation narratives. Mobilisation, both in the war and of opinion against the king, began long before the manifesto was issued. Many historians, from Hippolyte Taine to Jean Jaurès, to Francois Furet have thus challenged the view that the reaction to the Brunswick Manifesto incited fresh animosities. Michael Wicknock has categorically denied its role in instigating the coup of 10 August, because so much of the work in preparing the insurrection had already happened before it was known in Paris. So, while a group of historians think the Brunswick Manifesto was critical in triggering the insurrection which brought about the fall of the monarchy, another group of historians question its impact, and others outright repudiate it had an impact at all. In later years, the Duke of Brunswick himself had some very firm opinions as to the document's importance, and that as well as just who came up with the idea to threaten fire and brimstone upon the French people, will be the topic of an episode extra for this episode. Hot tip, the most admired prince in Europe may not have had much to do with the document which infamously bore his name, and its origins are, well, let's just say, a little unusual. By the start of August 1792, the monarchy had just days to live. With at least several thousand federes now gathered in the capital, with the Brunswick Manifesto promising an ever-memorable vengeance, and with the leaders of Paris's radical cohorts readying themselves for revolt, a concerted attempt at a second revolution was a matter of when, not if. It's here that we rendezvous with the sections of Paris. In the last episode, we witnessed several important developments within the city's sections. Firstly, the sections had begun to sit in permanent session, with some of the more radical sections repudiating the distinction of active and passive citizens and embracing universal male suffrage. For example, Not only did the sections grant passive citizens the right to vote in sectional assemblies, but they also granted them the right to join the National Guard. Naturally, actions like these energised members of the Parisian sans-culottes, who, at least in some sections, could now deliberate and participate in the very active work of the city's most revolutionary bodies. This 
was no small thing. Historian Francois Furet stresses that the admittance of passive citizens was critical to the work of the sections, a key development in progressing the insurrection and the revolution by strengthening the section's links to the sans-culottes. The decisions of the sections also influenced the actions of the Legislative Assembly. The Assembly stopped short of embracing universal male suffrage, but it had taken a significant step closer towards that policy by declaring that all men who fought in the War of Liberty would receive the rights of active citizens. The sections also influenced other decisions of the Assembly, including the Assembly's decision to distribute pikes and other weapons to passive citizens. Most importantly, however, we saw the establishment of a shadow government in the Hotel de Ville, that is to say, the town hall itself. Paris already had a municipal government, but the sections established their own correspondence committee, which usurped much of the official authority's legitimacy. Officially, this new committee would allow Paris to prepare its defences from the coming assault on the capital. Realistically, however, this shadow municipal government was now in a position to prepare its own assault, an assault on the Tuileries Palace. It's here, at the end of July and the beginning of August, that we continue to see the sections of Paris pushing the revolutionary agenda. On the 31st of July, the section of Montconseil informed the city's clubs and sections that the nation found itself in a dangerous crisis, one which required radical solutions to overcome. Proclaiming quite literally that one should forget the law in order to save the nation, the section declared that it no longer recognised Louis XVI as king. For too long, a despicable tyrant has played with our destinies. Without amusing ourselves any longer by calculating his errors, his crimes and his perjuries, let us strike this colossus of despotism. Let us all unite to declare the fall of this cruel king. Let us say with one accord, Louis XVI is no longer king of the French. In this extraordinary assertion of both popular sovereignty and sectional autonomy, the section of Montconseil had boldly declared that it no longer recognised Louis and called upon others to do the same. Now, this little declaration was really just a preview of what the majority of the sections would do just a few days later. But I do want to unpack the symbolism of this event. This here is a prime example of the tension that increasingly existed between direct democracy and representative democracy. Between the political autonomy and moral authority of the sections and the autonomy and authority of the nation more broadly. I mean, this action 
by an administrative unit of Paris was quite extraordinary. Imagine if the second ward of Washington, D.C. announced that it no longer recognized the President of the United States, and then proceeded to lobby the other wards and Congress to remove the President from office through any means necessary. That is more or less what's happening here when a section of Paris states that it no longer recognizes the king and declares that the law must be set aside for the benefit of the nation. Now, sure, that comparison shouldn't be taken too literally. It's by no means perfect. For starters, in 2021, Washington, D.C. only represents about 0.2% of the population of the United States, whereas Paris would have been the city of the country, with only eight urban centres existing with a population above 50,000 in the entire country, and Paris sitting somewhere between 650 and 700,000 people. Still, Paris would not have exceeded about 3% of the population of France. So we're still talking about a fraction of a fraction boldly asserting that it had the right to opine on matters of national significance. And this tension between the sections and the assembly, between Paris and the nation, is going to become critically important. After the fall of the monarchy, the sections will wield immense power and a critical debate will exist as to whether the will of the people is akin to the will of Paris. Interestingly, the Legislative Assembly moved to declare the Montconseil's section's decree illegal in early August, a clear rejection of the idea that a Parisian section had any right to interfere in constitutional matters. However, interfering in constitutional matters was the guilty pleasure of Paris's sections. Four days after the bold announcement of the Montconseil section, a petition was passed to the Legislative Assembly, backed by more than three quarters of the city's sections. Led by the Parisian mayor Petion, and potentially energised by the recent news of the Brunswick Manifesto, the petitioners proclaimed that Louis XVI was the first link in the counter-revolutionary chain. Accordingly, the king must be deposed. Interestingly, the petitioners then went much further. The petitioners not only proposed to the assembly the king's removal, but the king's replacement. As it is very doubtful that the nation could feel any confidence in the present dynasty, we demand that ministers, responsible as a body, nominated by the National Assembly, but not from its members, according to the constitutional law, named by the vote of free men spoken aloud, shall provisionally exercise the executive power, while waiting until the will of the people, our sovereign and yours, shall be legally expressed in a national convention, as soon as the safety of the state shall permit.
Now, in the last episode, I explained that some revolutionaries were using calls for a second revolution and a national convention as a way of calling for a republic without saying the R word itself. The demand that we just heard from the section's petitioners is a perfect example of this. After all, if one's goal was a republic, the throning King Louis was just the first of many steps. The petitioners proclaimed that the nation had no confidence in the present dynasty. That assertion naturally rejects King Louis XVI, but it also rules out the young heir to the throne as well. Furthermore, in repudiating the entire dynasty, the revolutionaries were also disavowing the king's popular cousin, the Duc d'Orléans. Orléans had long been broached as a possible replacement to Louis, but here the petitioners were rejecting Orléans as being both the regent for the young heir, as well as becoming king in his own right. So, if the petitioners were demanding King Louis XVI's dethronement, and rejecting the entire Bourbon dynasty as well, what were the constitutional alternatives? Tellingly, the petitioners hardly suggested importing a foreign king, such as the Duke of York, or even the Duke of Brunswick, as had been suggested by the French press prior to the Brunswick Manifesto. Now, importing a foreign king for political purposes may sound like an odd concept, but that's more or less what the British did in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Although, to be fair, the Dutch Stadtholder William III was the blood relative of the deposed King James II. Steering back into French history, the omission of any other candidates to the French throne was deliberate. In rejecting the Bourbon dynasty, in omitting the possibility of a foreign dynasty, and finally in proposing the establishment of an executive power consisting of a council of ministers until the National Convention could determine a new constitution, these revolutionaries were essentially proposing a republic. They were just doing so without saying as such. Despite this petition being backed by 40 of the city's 48 sections, the Legislative Assembly was hardly willing to play ball. Over the next few days, the Assembly continued to resist the encroachment of these sections in constitutional matters. From the perspective of the Assembly, these were issues for the nation, not the sections of Paris. The sections, however, continued their advance. Leading the charge was the section of Kasvar. On the 4th of August, just one day after Petian had petitioned the Assembly to install a Council of Ministers as the executive power, the section proclaimed that if the Assembly failed to act, the people would do so themselves. The section of Kasvar set a deadline of 11pm on the night of the 9th of August. If the Assembly had not granted the people their rights and justice, that is to say, if the Assembly had not deposed the King within five days, then at midnight the tocsin would sound and insurrection would be proclaimed. The mood of the sections could be summed up in a warning 
one provided to the Assembly regarding dethronement. If you refuse, however, to do it, we shall have to take it upon ourselves. With a deadline for dethronement set by the radical sections of Paris, this is where we will be pausing our narrative. The fall of the monarchy on the 10th of August 1792 will be the topic of our next episode. Before we get to that, however, we need to reintroduce and re-examine the positions of a range of revolutionary protagonists and factions. And this is important because, like all revolutions, there were significant ramifications for those who were leading the people, those who were following the people, and finally, those who were running as fast as possible away from the people. So, for the rest of this episode, we will be exploring which factions and which factional leaders were either supportive or directly involved in the fall of the monarchy. Hello, everybody. This is an ad. Or at least, this is where an ad would be if grey history actually had ads. But we don't. See, the teeny tiny downside of being a small, independent podcast which has decided to specialise in the French Revolution niche so much so that even after 34 episodes we haven't hit the fall of the monarchy is that there's hardly the hundreds of thousands of listeners which makes podcast advertising viable. So instead of being an ad for someone else, this is an ad for Grey History. If you're enjoying the show, then there's no better way to support it than to become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. For as little as $2 an episode, you'll gain access to exclusive episode extras, bonus episodes, and episode guides. You'll also gain access to an ad-free feed, including this ad right here. Depending on your pledge, there's also early access to all new content, shout-outs on the show, and the chance to feature as a voiceover in the podcast itself. For this episode alone, there is roughly 30 minutes of exclusive bonus content. So don't wait. Take the two to three minutes to support a small, independent history podcast and enjoy not only all the exclusive content, but all the warm, fuzzy feelings that come with supporting small, independent artists. There's a link in the show notes and on the website, or just Google Grey History Podcast Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So hit the pause button and support the podcast now. Joined the party? Perfect. Let's get back into the show, which, believe me, has plenty of surprises in the second half. Let's start with a faction which was most certainly not about to lead the insurrection of 10 August 1792, and that's the Fionns. To recap, the Fionns had established themselves as their own independent club when they split from the Jacobins just weeks after the flight to Varennes in mid-1791. The Champ de Mars massacre, which occurred the day after the club's formation, helped to cement the division between the Fionns and the Jacobins. 
as did the tricolour terror, which occurred in the final months of the National Assembly. For some time, the Fillons were led in part by the triumvirate of Antoine Barnev, Adrien Duport, and Alexander Delamette. Barnev was the most notable of the three, but the young politician had retired from public life after the National Assembly was dissolved and the Legislative Assembly took its place. Another leading Fillon who had not retired from public life was, of course, the Marquis de Lafayette. Although his public image had diminished since its peak in 1790, Lafayette was still perhaps the most influential man in the country. When we last checked in on Lafayette, he had left his troops on the frontier in late June, while he attempted to compel the Legislative Assembly to take drastic measures in the wake of the demonstration of the 20th of June. Not only did Lafayette want the ringleaders punished, but he also wanted many clubs and political societies closed down. Furthermore, the general was privately considering how he could use his armies to curb the radicalism and excesses of the capital. That scheming had not dissipated, and throughout July 1792, Lafayette had continued to try to enlist royalist elements of the army to help the king escape Paris. All of this came to naught, but the point here is that Lafayette, and the Fillons more broadly, were most certainly not about to bring about the overthrow of the monarchy. Lafayette may not have been acting in a way which was faithful to the constitution, but he was acting in a way which was faithful to constitutional monarchy. A second revolution was not his objective. To state the obvious, a second revolution was also not the objective of Louis XVI either. For the king, and for the court more broadly, the immediate goal was to delay the Parisian insurrection, which was clearly imminent. The court hoped that if it could just buy enough time, then, in a few weeks, the Duke of Brunswick would reach Paris and liberate the royal family from captivity. And I do mean buy time literally. The court paid bribes in an effort to forestall the revolt and also took defensive measures to prepare for violent unrest. We'll explore those measures in the next episode, but the point is, is that the only revolution that the court desired was counter-revolution. With neither the Fions nor the court involved in planning the coming insurrection, the question remains, who was? So, let's flip to the other side of the political spectrum and explore the factions which were likely to be involved. Let's start with the radical left, members of the Cordelier or Jacobin clubs. In particular, I want to explore the positions of three key revolutionaries. Firstly, the fanatical journalist Jean-Paul Marat. Secondly, the esteemed former deputy Maximilien Robespierre. And finally, the giant of the Cordelier club, Georges Danton. All three men will play huge roles throughout this series, so it's important that we reacquaint ourselves with who they were and their roles in the insurrection of 10 August. Let's start with Marat. We first met Marat back in episode 15, when the scientist-turned-journalist 
was developing a reputation for being the very definition of a radical writer. Stylizing himself as the friend of the people, Marat denounced and maligned anyone who he believed to be a threat to the revolution. Initially attacking prominent officials such as Necker, Lafayette and Bailly, the outspoken journalist had been on the wrong side of the authorities for years. However, the matter which concerned the authorities was not the fact that Marat endlessly criticised members of the government. No, what concerned them and what compelled them to quite vigorously pursue Marat was the fact that his solution to just about every problem was violence. According to Marat, the treason and conspiracies which consumed France could only be vanquished with extreme measures. How extreme? Well, Marat had started by calling for the execution of a few hundred aristocrats. But as time passed, these radical remedies only became more bloody. As threats to the revolution increased in 1791 and 1792, Marat's demands rose as well. Soon, the solution was not the death of hundreds, but thousands, and then tens of thousands, and eventually hundreds of thousands. Marat was openly calling for the mass slaughter of aristocrats. And, like the Sans-Culottes who he championed, Marat had come to redefine the term aristocrat so that he was effectively calling for the elimination of any who stood against the people. Now, there was no shortage of revolutionary as well as counter-revolutionary publications demanding the bloody elimination and extermination of their enemies. So, why do we care about Marat specifically? Well, Marat happened to have quite the following. And just like the controversial media personalities we have today, that following translated into real power and influence. How Marat came to ascertain this power will be explored at a future point in time. But put simply, three factors certainly helped. Firstly, his writings could take their consumer on an emotional roller coaster. Fear, panic, anger, and rage oozed from the paper into the reader, and Marat was undoubtedly a talented wordsmith. Secondly, Marat had predicted a number of key events, including the King's escape attempt in June 1791, as well as the disastrous state of the war. These accurate predictions helped turn Marat from rambling curiosity into a revolutionary prophet. Finally, Marat had long positioned himself as a champion of the people, and in consistently writing on their behalf, in tirelessly lobbying for policies popular amongst the Parisian sans-culottes, Marat naturally acquired quite a loyal following amongst the city's working people. We'll explore all of this in future episodes, but in short, by mid-1792, Marat had risen to considerable prominence and wielded real influence in certain radical sections and political societies. So, how does all of this tie into the insurrection of 1792? Well, surprisingly, it doesn't. 
Well, it kind of doesn't. It's a matter of grey history. Marat undoubtedly supported the insurrection against the throne. But at the time of the insurrection of 10 August 1792, Marat was in hiding. Always angering the established authorities, Marat was currently being pursued for his latest seditious writings. Marat had recently been calling for the soldiers to murder their traitorous generals. And as you can imagine, in a wartime situation, such calls prompted, oh, you know, just a slight reaction from those in charge of the war effort. A war effort which already had no shortage of problems. So Marat was in hiding up until the fall of the monarchy, and therefore historians don't really know the extent he played in the events of the 10th. Marat certainly played a major role in the controversial events which followed the fall of the monarchy, and through his journalism, he contributed to the atmosphere in Paris which facilitated the insurrection. However, the role he played in the insurrection itself is debated. His biographer, Ernst Belfort Bax, claims that Marat was still in concealment from the authorities, while historian Gaetano Salvamini offers a less flattering picture, claiming the friend of the people was hidden in his cellar, prepared for defeat, and only emerged when victory was assured. Those that imply he played a more active role note his Cudelier Club acquaintances, who did play prominent parts in the insurrection. But the truth of the matter is largely unknown. However, with the removal of the established authorities in mid-August, Marat will be able to come out of hiding, and thus he's about to become one of the most famous revolutionaries in history. So, if Marat's not going to lead this thing, What about the man who Marat had championed as the incorruptible? What about the individual who Marat called to be made dictator? What about Maximilien Robespierre? Unlike Marat, Robespierre has been consistently prominent in our journey since we first met him in 1789. Back then, the young deputy from Arras had made a name for himself in the National Assembly by passionately opposing a range of laws which he considered to be unjust and immoral. These laws included the distinction between active and passive citizens, as well as the legislation which enabled the declaration of martial law. Notably, Robespierre had been the instigator of the self-denying ordinance, which meant that no member of the National Assembly could sit as a member of the Legislative Assembly. Since the National Assembly's dissolution in September 1791, Robespierre had remained in public life. Critically, it was Robespierre who had championed the anti-war position within the Jacobins. And although others eventually found their voice to support him, that position was, for quite some time, a lonely and unpopular one. Nevertheless, by mid-1792, with the war going just fantastically, Robespierre's image was on the rise. Vindicated for his opposition to the conflict, the advocate of the people saw his influence grow amongst the revolutionary left. 
Now, given what we already know about Robespierre, and given what you may know of the revolution's most famous protagonist, you may think that Robespierre would play a leading role in the insurrection which would bring about the fall of the monarchy. After all, Robespierre is often depicted by his detractors as the dictator of the revolution, the personification of the terror and all its excesses. So, surely Robespierre was eager to overthrow not only the monarchy, but the legislative assembly, an assembly which we heard him link to the crimes of the court in the last episode, and an assembly under the sway of his rivals, Brousseau and the Girondins. Well, perhaps it won't be surprising to find out that we're about to explore some more grey history. The short answer is no. Robespierre was not a principal leader of the insurrection of 10 August, and in fact, some historians believe he only supported the insurrection at the last moment. To back up a bit, let's make sure we're all on the same page regarding Robespierre's personal politics. Back in mid-1791, when the flight to Varennes turned French politics on its head, many leading figures on the revolutionary left forcefully came out in favour of a republic. This included Danton and members of the Cordelier Club, as well as Brousseau and some of those we associate with the Girondins. Robespierre, however, was not among them. Robespierre feared how calls for a republic could empower the revolution's opponents. And besides, the form of government was a mute point. To Robespierre, the critical issue at hand was not so much a monarchy or a republic. It mattered little whether the country was under the control of a dictator or a king, a parliament or a senate, consuls or tribunes. What mattered, what truly mattered, was the abolition of tyranny, the protection of the rights of citizens, the principles of justice and morality. The form of government was irrelevant so long as civil, social and political equality were secured for all citizens. As Robespierre proclaimed, I would rather see a popular representative assembly and free and respected citizens with a king than a people enslaved and degraded under the whip of an aristocratic senate and a dictator. I do not like Cromwell any better than Charles I. So, Robespierre was no die-hard Republican, and in fact, throughout 1792, Robespierre took measures against a possible French Republic. It was no coincidence that he chose the name the Defender of the Constitution for his publication, and although the publication enjoyed little popularity, Robespierre's stance was clear. He may have sought reform to the Constitution of 1791, but he was not about to back a Republican alternative. Even as late as June 1792, Robespierre disparaged the Girondins for pushing an overtly Republican agenda. With the war situation deteriorating, Robespierre stood firmly in support of the constitutional monarchy. The overthrow of the constitution at this moment can only kindle civil war 
which will lead to anarchy and despotism. Now, to be clear, just what motivated this defence of constitutional monarchy is a bit murky. Some historians and contemporaries assert that at this point in time, Robespierre was genuinely supportive of constitutional monarchy. But others, including myself, are not convinced. Instead, other historians assert that Robespierre naturally lent towards a republic, but he refused to endorse one because he feared that a new republic would be designed by the Legislative Assembly. And that would be problematic, because the Legislative Assembly was firmly under the influence of the Girondins, his bitter rivals. Robespierre believed that any republic crafted by Brousseau and his allies would not favour the interests of the common people, and therefore he was hardly about to embrace calls to revise the constitution if it meant empowering those he deeply distrusted. Lending credibility to the idea that Robespierre probably leaned towards a republic, but was wary of how its creation could hamper the revolution, is the fact that many of his role models were in fact republicans. A student of history, Robespierre was well-versed in the republics of antiquity, and he idolised the likes of Brutus and Cato the Elder. So Robespierre may have had republican sympathies, but the point remains. Even by mid-1792, he was no vocal champion of a French republic, and that presents a bit of a problem. Ascertaining precisely when Robespierre truly embraced the idea of a second revolution is a little difficult, and determining when he came around to the idea that a second revolution could and should be obtained through violent insurrection is even more challenging. What we do know is this. Throughout July 1792, Robespierre continued to be wary of insurrection. Cautious by nature, Robespierre knew that a failed insurrection would be bloody, brutal, and potentially fatal to the revolution. Lafayette was clearly looking for a reason to turn his armies on Paris, and Robespierre deeply distrusted the motives of the general. Combine that with the impending foreign invasion, and a blunder by the revolutionaries could be disastrous. Yet, as the mood in Paris moved towards insurrection throughout July, so too did Robespierre. We heard from him in the last episode in mid-July, when he linked the crimes of the court to the assembly, and implied that the deputies were implicit in the king's treason if they failed to act in the interests of the nation. Furthermore, some historians also claim that Robespierre was active in coordinating and organising the activities of the newly established Central Committee of the Federes. Just how involved Robespierre was with the Federes in mid-July is disputed, but critically, it's on the 29th of July that Robespierre firmly pinned his colours to the mast. The influential Jacobin called for the deposition of the king by the assembly and the establishment of a new convention elected by universal male suffrage. For Robespierre, the election of a new convention was key. Morally, it was the right thing to do. All men would be given the right to vote, 
and the people's will would determine the fate of the nation. Practically, it had its benefits as well. Robespierre was wary of any insurrection which would empower the Legislative Assembly, an assembly under the influence of Brousseau and the Girondins. Calling for a convention to replace the Legislative Assembly thus neutralised the threat of a Girondin-led legislature unilaterally remaking France. So, by the end of July, Robespierre was openly in favour of a second revolution, and historian Peter McPhee, who has written extensively on Robespierre, claims that he moved in favour of insurrection once it became clear that it could be interpreted as an expression of the people's will. However, the point here is that Robespierre did not lead public opinion. He followed. Likewise, he will not lead the insurrection itself. Marat criticised Robespierre for growing pale at the sight of a sabre, and Robespierre's contribution to the actual overthrow of the king was quite limited, if any. Some historians believe he helped to harmonise and coordinate the platforms of the Central Committee of the Federes and the Central Correspondence Office of the Sections. But if he did do this, that's the extent of his influence. Like Marat, his enemies claimed that he hid in a cellar during the critical hours of the 10th of August. Thus, the revolution's most famous Republican certainly supported the insurrection, but he played a surprisingly little, perhaps even negligible role in the fall of the monarchy. So, having covered Marat and Robespierre, and having found supporters, but not leaders, of this insurrection, let us finally turn our attention to a giant of the revolution, the famous Georges Danton. We first met Danton back in episode 17, when we introduced the radical Cordelier Club. Throughout 1790 and 1791, the Cordeliers had been a radical thorn in the side of the National Assembly, as well as the municipality of Paris. Critically, in the wake of the flight to Varennes, Danton, along with other leading revolutionary figures, had pressed for not only dethronement, but the establishment of a republic. The result was that this Mirabeau of the mob had to go into hiding as the tricolour terror established itself after the Sharp de Mars massacre. Throughout 1792, Danton had come to find an anti-war position, and like many of those heavily tied to the sections and the clubs, came to see himself as a champion of the people's interests. Energetic and courageous, Danton, far more so than Robespierre and Marat, was willing to embrace a physical contest with the established authorities. Before we get into Danton's influence on the 10th of August, it's noteworthy his considerable influence on events leading up to the insurrection itself. Historian Francois-Alphonse Ollard credits Danton with playing an outsized role in convincing the Federés to remain in Paris after the Fête de la Fédération of 1792, and thus holds partial responsibility for a critical ingredient in the monarchy's fall. A little more than a fortnight later, it was Danton's section which helped to push the admittance of passive citizens into sectional assemblies, which in turn helped to push the Legislative Assembly 
into taking steps towards removing the distinction altogether. Finally, at this time, Danton was the deputy procurer of the Paris municipal government, and it's argued by some historians that he used his official capacity as a member of City Hall to help establish and empower the Central Correspondence Committee of the sections. Since the committee would go on to take key steps to weaken the monarchy's ability to defend itself, as well as to strengthen the position of the federes and pro-revolutionary Parisian National Guard units, once again, Danton's influence was no small matter. However, the question I really want to get to here is what role, if any, did Danton play in leading the events of the 10th of August? And the answer here is, you guessed it, disputed. There is a minority of historians who play down Danton's influence on the day's events, instead focusing on Danton's associates and other members of the Cordelier Club. Like Marat and Robespierre, these historians imply that Danton only emerged once victory had been all but assured, or perhaps played a minimal role in the overthrow of Paris's municipal authority. This view, however, is drowned out by the significant number of voices who in fact argue that Danton was critical to the day's events. Historian Louis Madeleine describes the 10th of August as being Danton's coup, while historian François-Alphonse Ollard states that he was the chief leader of the party of insurrection. Contemporaries echoed these sentiments. The radical Jacobin, Biu Varenne, stated that Danton made the 10th of August, and Garat, a future minister and associate of Danton, shared similar views. The American revolutionary, Governor Morris, likewise implicated Danton as a leading figure of the insurrection, referring to Danton's schemes in a letter to Thomas Jefferson in December 1792. Lending credibility to the argument in favour of Danton's influence, many of the leading figures of this revolt were associates of Danton. Danton did not personally lead the storming of the Tuileries Palace, but his associates did. Danton did not single-handedly immobilise the monarchy's defences, but his associates did. Danton did not unilaterally overthrow the municipal government, but his associates did. Thus, while there is debate over whether or not this truly is Danton's coup, it most certainly is a coup of Danton's associates. And while the extent of Danton's involvement may be disputed, he certainly gained much of the credit for the insurrection's success. In short, it's a matter of grey history whether Danton was pulling the strings or whether he merely was one of many co-conspirators. But what can be said with certainty is that Danton was supportive of the insurrection and was likely a far more active participant than both Marat and Robespierre. So, the Cadelier Club and the radical Montagnard wing of the Jacobins were in favour of the overthrow of the monarchy, and some prominent revolutionaries of 1793 and 1794 did play an outsized role. Whether as a participant or merely as a supporter, 
most members of the radical left of Paris were more than eager to remedy the troubles of the nation by removing the corrupt king and those who supported his treason. Now, so far, this is all relatively par for the course. The Fillon constitutional monarchists supported constitutional monarchy. The French court supported the French court. And the most radical cohorts of Paris supported the most radical solution those cohorts of Paris could agree upon. All to be expected. But what might not be expected is the position that another major faction took. So before we reach the fall of the monarchy, let's unpack the 16-dimensional puzzle that was the positions of the Girondins. At first glance, it may appear that the position of the Girondins on the need for a second revolution would be a relatively clear-cut case. Surely, they would be in favour. If we take a stroll down memory lane, we'll recall that Brousseau was a committed Republican and played an influential role in the various Republican agitations and petitions in the wake of the flight to Varennes. A few months after the king's failed escape, Brousseau was elected to the Legislative Assembly, and there he, along with the other Girondin deputies, battled with the court on everything from refractory priests to hostile emigres to the legitimacy of the suspensive veto. With tensions rising between the court and one of the Assembly's most prominent factions, throughout the winter of 1791 and 92, Rousseau and his allies led the charge in favour of revolutionary war. And remember, some historians make the case that the Brousseauans sought to use war as a means of enacting republican reforms to the constitution, as well as a means of forcing the king to adopt their radical agenda. With the war having commenced terribly, the Girondins were soon on the back foot, and the Girondin ministers were dismissed from office in mid-June. This dismissal outraged the Girondins in the assembly, and helped to prompt the demonstration on the 20th of June, which some historians and contemporaries linked to the Girondins, seeing it as an effort to have their ministers reinstated. In the last episode, we heard Brousseau accuse the king and his ministry of treason. We also heard in the episode extra, Venue echo these allegations. Given their long-held republicanism, and given their accusations of treason against the crown, surely the Girondins were ready to remove Louis, even if that meant insurrection. Surely they agreed with their Jacobin counterparts that in order to save the nation, a second revolution had become a necessity. Well, despite Brousseau, Vernieu, Godet, and other Girondins having savaged the monarchy in early July, and having called for a republic for, I don't know, the last year, by the end of July, these deputies were singing a very different tune. On the 26th of July, the Girondin deputy Godet made a surprising remark while addressing petitions 
relating to dethronement, stating that the king might still save the country and his crown, provided he took the necessary measures. But if Godet's remark was surprising, Brousseau's actions were astonishing. Brousseau, long a member of the Republican movement's vanguard, suddenly found himself embracing the banner of constitutional monarchy. The surprise, and then the anger of the galleries, was audible as Brousseau proceeded to denounce any talk of constitutional change. According to the influential Girondin, dethronement would guarantee civil war, and thus such an action could only occur after a thorough inquiry and rigorous debate. Going further, Brousseau proceeded to attack any who were even willing to propose the possibility of a republic, declaring that the state's current dangers were too great and too immediate to make a republic a viable solution to the nation's woes. In an almost unbelievable scene, Brousseau proceeded to declare that those working towards a republic should be treated the same as counter-revolutionary émigrés. That is to say, that they should be put to death. If this party of regicides exists, if there are men who would be capable of establishing the republic now, on the wreckage of the constitution, the sword of the nation should descend upon them, as upon the active supporters of the proposal for two chambers or the counter-revolutionists of Koblenz. So, we now find ourselves in a situation where Brousseau, the Republican Brousseau, is defending not only constitutional monarchy, but Louis XVI himself. The king, who he had been accusing of treason less than three weeks before. If you're a tad confused, you have every right to be. And just to add another confusion cherry on top, now let me inform you that some members of the Girondins had opened secret negotiations with the court, hoping to have their ministers reinstalled in return for averting the coming insurrection. So, what the absolute hell was going on here? Well, we're about to wade into some very deep and very murky grey history. Let's start with the explanations which are not complementary to the decisions and motivations of the Girondins. The anarchist historian Peter Kruputkin declares that it was fear which motivated the sudden Girondin reversal. According to Kruputkin, the Girondins saw the growing power and influence of the Parisian sans-culottes as a threat to the established elites within France. Driving this perception were a number of developments that had given the Girondins cause for concern. Firstly, the most radical publications were calling for violent solutions to the nation's troubles. And as one, if not the most prominent faction within the Legislative Assembly, violent disturbances 
were the last thing the Girondins wanted when civil unrest was already on the rise. Furthermore, the term aristocrat was gradually being redefined to broadly encompass well-off members of society. Thus, these violent solutions, which called for death to aristocrats, threatened many individuals with links to the Girondin faction. In fact, it threatened many members of the Girondin faction. Secondly, the Saint-Culottes and their advocates were adopting an increasingly radical economic agenda. While the Girondins were sympathetic to the hardships of hunger, commodity shortages and inflation, calls for price maximums and death penalties for speculators and hoarders were not acceptable to many of the free market orientated Girondins. Finally, although universal male suffrage was supported by the Girondins, other political demands of the Sankalots and their allies were most certainly not. We'll explore in future episodes the ongoing friction between legitimate and illegitimate expression, and the conflict between representative and direct democracy. But in short, the Girondins were generally wary of the unrestrained direct democracy that was advocated by some of Paris's most radical clubs and sections. So, as the Girondins observed their surroundings in mid-1792, they saw rising civil unrest, an increasing threat to property rights, challenges to individual liberties, and calls to reform the political system which looked dangerously close to the tyranny of the majority. In other words, the Girondins saw problems. Plenty of them. The proposals and policies of the developing popular revolution would have made their stomachs turn. Thus, historian Kruputkin labels the Girondins as the party of the statesmen, and here he boldly claims that these bourgeois statesmen were petrified of the coming People's Revolution. It was their fear of a popular revolution, a revolution which would touch upon property, their fear and their contempt for the people, the mob of ragged wretches. Kropotkin dismisses competing ideas as to what motivated the sudden Girondin reversal, including ideas that Brousseau was bribed by the court, or that the Girondins merely wanted to re-grasp their former power by having their ministers recalled. For Kropotkin, the answer is a simple and fundamental one. The Girondins feared the rising power of the masses. That was what motivated their sudden change of heart. Joining historian Kruputkin in explaining the reversal of the Girondin position is historian George Lefebvre. Now, historian Lefebvre is someone who is generally considered as belonging to the Marxist school of historians, and thus, like Kruputkin, this means he tends to view the revolution primarily through the prism of class conflict. It's here that I'll issue an official correction. As a listener pointed out a few episodes back, I accidentally referred to Kropotkin as a Marxist, which he was not. He was a socialist, an anarchist, and an anarcho-communist, but he was not a Marxist. 
Now, from the point of view of French Revolution historiography, both Marxist and anarchist interpretations have a lot of similarities. And one day I will do an episode dedicated to the revolution's various schools of historical thought. But now is not then, so please just excuse my mistake. Getting back to historian George Lefebvre, Lefebvre agrees with Kropotkin that fear was the driving factor behind the actions of the Girondin deputies. Accusing the Girondins of lacking real sympathies for the hardships of the common people, Lefebvre asserts that the policies of the coming popular revolution scared them into defending a king who they had only just been assailing. Speaking of their motivations, Lefebvre writes, There were, however, deeper reasons for the failure of the Gironde. At heart, these statesmen felt little more than distant sympathy for the Sanculottes, and the thought of insurrection terrified them because they foresaw that, unless they remained masters of the situation, private wealth would be endangered, just as the Fionns had been predicting, and perhaps private property as well. So, there is one camp of historians who explain the sudden Girondin reversal as one that was motivated by fear. According to these historians, the bourgeois Girondins feared that an insurrection may deliver Paris, and therefore the country, into the hands of the Parisian sections, clubs, and most importantly, sans-culottes. Once in those hands, a range of policies restricting property rights and individual liberties could be enforced, such as a maximum price on goods and the death penalty to those deemed speculating or hoarding food supplies or other basic commodities. Now, before we get into alternative points of view, particularly from those historians who don't emphasise class conflict to the same extent as Lefebvre or Kropotkin, it's worth noting that there is reasonable evidence to back up this line of thinking. Vernieu, for example, often regarded as the great orator of the Girondins, wrote extensively at this point in time, and no shortage of letters exist where he expresses his genuine angst regarding the state of affairs. Vernieu wrote that the nation was living in a state of continual agitation and he routinely expressed his concerns of the unrest which ailed France. While he was sympathetic to the popular outrages caused by the king's vetoes, vetoes over legislation he championed, he also feared that such sentiments could accelerate developments and escape the control of the constituent authorities and the rule of law. Vernieu wasn't the only Girondin that shared these concerns. You may recall that the former interior minister Roland managed to get himself fired because he informed the king that without a drastic change in course, he feared the nation could be consumed by civil unrest and anarchy. These are just two examples, but there is considerable evidence backing up the claims of historians who depict the Girondins of being fearful, or at the very least, 
incredibly concerned that the civil unrest afflicting the country could exponentially increase, especially if an insurrection toppled the constitutional authorities. In such a scenario, chaos would ensue, and from the ashes of constitutionalism, the worrisome popular policies of the sun culottes and their allies could very quickly become reality. Furthermore, civil war would become a certainty. Yet, this is by no means the only angle in which these events have been interpreted. Historian Bertha Gardiner states that the Girondins were motivated not so much by fear, but by theory and ideology. According to Gardiner, the Girondins, ever the statesmen, were unwilling that the Republic should owe its origin to violence. Thus, as a result, Brousseau and his allies were prepared to give support to the throne on the condition that Louis assented to make the executive dependent on the legislature and to restore the Girondin ministers to office. Historian Hippolyte Taine shares similar views, stating that the Girondins preferred to subdue the king, but insists that they were more than willing to rule without him if they could not rule through him. Historian Taine writes, They are quite willing to retain the king on his throne, but on the condition that he shall be a mere puppet, that he shall recall the patriot ministers, allowing them to appoint the Dauphin's tutor, and that Lafayette shall be removed. Otherwise, the assembly will pass the act of dethronement and possess themselves of the executive power. Finally, agreeing in part with historian Taine is historian Gaetano Salvamini, who also asserts that the Girondins were doing far more than merely reacting in fear to a menacing populace. Salvamini asserts that the sudden about-face from the Girondins can be ascribed to political manoeuvrings. According to Salvamini, the Girondins sought to threaten and frighten the king with the possibility of dethronement, as seen in their speeches throughout June and early July. Then, believing the court to be ready to submit, the Girondins intended to secretly offer a truce which would see their position in the ministry reinstalled. Once they controlled both the assembly and the ministry, the Girondins planned to save the country and prosecute their nemeses on their left and right, namely Robespierre and Lafayette. In short, Selvamini states that the Girondins were not primarily motivated by fear, but by their belief that they could save the country. If only the king would let them. If threatening dethronement, was the best way to browbeat the king into submission, then that's the course they would undertake. Salvamini writes, But it would be wrong to conclude that from this moment, as they later boasted, the Girondins directed all their energies towards this end. They only wished the king to recall the three ministers, entrust the Dauphin's education to someone of their choosing, dismiss Lafayette, 
and give up the right of veto. Once the government was in their hands, they had no doubts as to their own capacity for saving the country and holding the extremists in check. If the king refused to give way, the assembly would dethrone him and seize the reins of government. But they did not expect to be driven that far. They believed that a mere threat of violence would be enough to force the king's hand. Proof of their attitude is to be found in the fact that while in public they attacked the king, they were making him peace proposals in secret. They intended to rid themselves of Robespierre by bringing him to trial on skillfully prepared charges. So, while some historians argue that the Girondins changed their tune because they were scared shitless of the prospect of mob rule and the rise of the great unwashed, there are also those historians who reject this notion entirely. Others suggest ideology or belief amongst the Girondins that they were the best placed to save the nation, provided the king cooperated. These are just some of the proposals which surround the motivations of the Girondins, with good old-fashioned bribery and the raw pursuit of power offered as yet more alternatives as to why the Girondins suddenly shifted in their stance. Just what drove the Girondins to change course remains grey. But in my own personal view, I'm certainly sympathetic to the argument that many Girondins were clearly distressed by the agitation and unrest of the people, and probably shared concerns that a successful revolution would empower not only the ideas and policies which they feared, but also their factional opponents, which they despised. Now, we'll explore the consequences of this sudden reversal of positions in future episodes. We'll also spend a lot of time exploring the complex relationship between the Girondins and the Sanculottes, and the deep divisions which arise within the Girondins themselves. For now, though, let's just say this unexpected change in posture didn't go unnoticed. Even with the secret dealings between the court and the Girondins remaining secret for now, Brousseau's public actions would earn him a new nickname. Barnev II. That's of course a reference to the fact that Barnev was one of the most radical members of the National Assembly before proceeding to cooperate with the court and more or less lead the Fillon faction in the wake of the Champ de Mars massacre. And if you think about it, what we're really witnessing here is a shift which we've already seen countless times in our series the transformation of revolutionary to reactionary. Meunier, Mirabeau, Lafayette, Siez, Barnev, Duport, the Lamette brothers, and now the Girondins. Once again, the most radical and revolutionary voices have shifted and suddenly find themselves with a new home on the turbulent political spectrum that was the French Revolution. As it relates to the Girondins, this shift certainly had consequences consequences which we'll be exploring for the next dozen or so episodes. Most immediately, Robespierre, who already suspected the Girondins of secretly betraying the revolution, 
became even more convinced that Brousseau and his allies were in league with the court and traitors to the nation of France. Thus, the divisions within the Jacobin Club hardened further. Divisions which were already nearly unbridgeable between the Girondins and the Montagnards. Before we move on, I'll note that there will be two episode extras relating to everything we just discussed. The first episode extra will be an exploration of the secret dealings between the court and the Girondins, because there's a bit of a Han Solo and Greedo situation here where there's debate over who shot first. And by that, I mean who approached who to engage in these secret discussions. In that episode extra, we'll also cover some of the contents of these secret communications. In the second episode extra, I'll be providing some further background on the factors which powered Marat's popularity and influence. Both of these episode extras, along with the one exploring the surprising origins of the Brunswick Manifesto, are available for all Patreon sponsors of the show. Having now covered the position of the Girondins, we have a far better idea as to the political manoeuvrings of each major faction on the eve of the insurrection of the 10th of August. The Fillons and the court sought to avert revolution, but given their conflicting goals, the two camps could hardly work together. One sought to salvage a revolution increasingly on rocky ground, while the other sought to knock it over entirely and wind back the clock to 1789. The Montagnards were in favour of insurrection, although their most iconic leader, Robespierre, likely played little to no role in the insurrection itself. Likewise, the Cordelier Club sought a second revolution, but the role of Danton and Marat remained disputed, particularly as it relates to Danton, who was somewhere between a minor participant and the coup's mastermind. Finally, the majority of the Girondins sought to avert insurrection, or at least they intended to do so while they determined if they could find a way to rule through the king. Their motivations for suddenly abandoning cause for a republic, which they themselves had led for so long, is shrouded in debate and ambiguity. But fears of what revolution might unleash were certainly a factor in their calculations. With deep divisions between them, and at times deep divisions amongst themselves, the revolutionary factions all had competing objectives on the eve of the Second Revolution. A revolution which would upend political alignments and plunge France into terror. Thank you for listening to Grey History. Next episode will be the fall of the monarchy. We're finally here. We finally hit it. The time has come for the second revolution. A reminder to please send in your questions for the Q&A episode, and when you do so, nominate which of the three episode extras you would like to hear. As always, these shows take a huge amount of effort, so do please share the show with your friends, family, and colleagues. A huge thank you to every Patreon supporter of the show and a special call out again to the hero of the revolution, Brian, for being such a generous sponsor of Grey History. Don't forget that there is 30 minutes of bonus content for this episode alone, waiting for all Patreon supporters of the show. 
So if you're not a sponsor of the show, please do consider supporting Grey History. It's a great way to support one of your favourite independent podcasts, and there's tons of exclusive content for those that do. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.